If you haven't yet opened your Bible, open it up. John chapter 7. We've made it through John chapter 6. After, what, two months, we finally made it. John 7. Open up so you can see it for yourself, and let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word again. Thank you for your son. Thank you that in him we receive all that we need so that we can say with honest hearts, all glory be to Christ. We pray that you would get glory for yourself this morning by helping our hearts trust in you. Would you do that? Would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word? And Lord, would you make us more like you? Would you show us what true belief is? Would you show us what unbelief is? And will we trust what you say? We ask in your precious name. Amen. Jesus did not come to this world to join the system of this world, to fit in, affirm the world, maybe change a few things, become the king of this world, and receive glory from this world as it is. That's not why he came. Now, there are many who believe in a Jesus like that. He's a savior who gives us what we always wanted from this world, we just couldn't get it by ourselves. So we need Jesus to get the world for us. That's one vision of who Jesus is. Another is this, that he came to testify against this world, to die for it, recreate it, reorient it, and then glorify himself through it. A Savior who does not give us what we want until he first points out that what we want is wrong, then dies for us, and then changes what we want so that we want God. That's a different vision of Jesus. This text will say one is unbelief, and one is reality. The brothers, Jesus' brothers, they hold to the first vision of Jesus. That's the Jesus they believe in, a Jesus who's going to get them more of this world, and our text will call that unbelief. So we're going to start by setting the scene. So verses 1 and 2 set the scene for us. Then we're going to jump down to verse 6 where Jesus explains he has a different relationship with the world than his brothers do. They've got a different kind of relationship with this world. That's what we're going to see secondly. And then after that, we're going to jump back up to verse 3 and see, okay, if they have a different relationship with the world, what does it mean for their relationship with each other, Jesus and his brothers? And then we're going to close by talking about what it means for our relationship with Jesus. We want to apply it. So, let's set the scene. John tells us in verse 1 that the Jews in Judea, so so when, when John the gospel writer uses 
Jews. When he says Jews, he's usually talking about the leaders of the Jews. Pharisees, Sanhedrin, they want him dead. And we've known that since chapter 5. If you remember, he heals a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, but he does it on the Sabbath, so they want to kill him. And they also recognize that he's claiming to be equal with God, so they want him dead. So as a result, Jesus has been doing most of his ministry up north in Galilee. So Judea and Jerusalem are down south. Galilee is up north. He's been avoiding Judea, Jerusalem, because that's where they want him dead. Verse 2 tells us that the Feast of Booths is happening. So the Feast of Booths is when for seven days, Jews would, from all over, they would gather in Jerusalem and they would build tents or little booths out of branches and they would essentially camp out for seven days to remember how when the Lord brought them out of Egypt, he provided for them for 40 years in the wilderness. So it's a celebration of that. It happens for a week. It's a big festival, and there will be lots of people there. All the Jews are coming to Jerusalem for it. And that's why Jesus' brothers want him to go, because there are going to be lots of people there. They want him to be seen, and Jesus says, no. Jesus' reason for saying no starts in verse 6. He has a different relationship with the world than they do. So that, that's, that's what we're going to see now. He's going to explain to them, you guys have a different relationship with the world than I do. That's why I'm not going yet. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. So Jesus lives on a schedule. If you read the Gospels enough, you'll see, and this guy's pretty intentional. He's He's in certain places at certain times. He's on his father's schedule. We saw earlier in Cana, if you remember when he turns water into wine, his mother, Mary, says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Do something. And he says, you're a woman. My hour has not yet come. And he's talking about the hour of his glorification, which is his death, resurrection, ascension, Here, Jesus is saying something similar. He's saying, listen, it's not time for me to draw attention to myself to be the king. I go and do things on the Father's timing. I do them for his sake when he wants me to. Now you, he's talking to his brothers, you do whatever you want whenever you want. Your time is always, and that's how the world works. We do what we want when we want to do it. And he's telling his brothers, you're part of the world. That's how you operate. Whenever you want to do something, you can do it. Not me. I am here to be who the Father wants me to be. And that means I do things the way the Father wants me to when he wants me to. Now skip over over verse 7. Look at verses 8 and 10. Jesus tells his brothers, You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, look at verse 10. This is cheating a little bit because this is part of next week's passage. It says, but 
after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. A few people, a very few people, think that Jesus is lying here, saying, you go to the feast, I'm not going to the feast. And then once they leave, then he goes. He's not lying. One of the reasons we know that is because in verse 18 of this same chapter, Jesus says, there's no deceit in me. You can probably see it on the same page. There's no deceit in me. So Jesus is claiming, I don't lie. I don't deceive people. It would be absolutely absurd for John, the gospel writer, to be telling us here in verse 9 that Jesus is lying, and then nine verses later for Jesus to say, I don't lie. John, who wrote this, doesn't think that Jesus is lying when he says this here. The whole issue is timing. It's timing. Jesus is clear about that. You do whatever you want, whenever you want, like the world, but everything I do is on purpose. I have appointments. I have appointments to teach. I have appointments to heal. I have an appointment to die, and I have an appointment to rise. I do everything according to plan. Now, if Jesus had gone at the same time with his brothers, he would have gone up with a big crowd, a big caravan of people. It would have been very public. If you remember last chapter, crowds of people want to make him king. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's coming. Get ready, everybody. That's what would have happened. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be king by force. He is not trying to gain political power in this world as it is. That's why he cannot go with his brothers at the same time as them. Time is everything for Jesus. Not to be a political savior but a soul satisfier, a sacrificial savior. Timing is everything for that. Verse 7, Jesus goes on to tell his brothers this, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So Jesus' relationship with the world is different than his brother's relationship with the world, and it's not just about timing. The world hates him but the world cannot hate them. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? I mean, it feels like well, it's actually pretty easy to be hated by the world. So Jesus must be, mean something very specific here when he tells his brothers, the world cannot hate you. Jesus is telling his brothers, listen, you guys and me, we're on different teams. You're on team world, and I'm on team God. We have a very different relationship with the world. We know from Romans chapter 1 that the world, all of humanity, has made a trade. All of us have made a trade. Rather than living for God and his honor, doing everything for him, for his praise, for his sake, for his glory, we've made a trade. We live for created things, for the glory of creation, for this world. So Romans 1.25 says it this way. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature 
rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Paul's telling us in Romans 1, we worship the world. And that doesn't mean we all bow down to a big block of gold. Some people do that. But it means we live for what this world can give us rather than worshiping God and living for Him. And listen, everyone falls into one of those two categories. That's it. You either live for this world and the things this world can give you for the sake of this world, or you live for the sake of the Creator. He's your treasure. He's your joy. He's your life. Now back to our text. The reason the world can't hate Jesus' brothers is because they're living to worship the world just like everybody else. They fit into that category of people of this world who love the things of this world. Now, if you're living to worship the world, and I'm living to worship the world, I may not like the way that you're worshiping the world, but I'm not upset that you're worshiping the world. So I may take issue with the way that your world worship interferes with my world worship. Like, I love money. You love money. You grabbed the money before I could grab the money. I may take issue with that, but I don't hate you because you love money. I hate you because you took the money before I could. Here's another example. You may love praise that comes from people. And that might really irritate me because I love power. And because you're really good at getting praise from other people, all the bosses at work are paying attention to you rather than giving me the promotion I think I deserve. So I may not like that about you, but my issue is not that you love the world. I don't hate you because you love the world. You love the world, I love the world. You're just interfering with my love of the world. Jesus shows up to both of us, and he says, for both of you, that is evil, by definition. Living for this world, for fame, for power, for money, living for the creation rather than the creator is evil. The world doesn't hate you, brothers, because you live for this world just like they do. But it hates me because I tell the world that living for the world is evil. Jesus, he tells us here, he testifies against the world. He wants you to know that living for this world is evil. So no matter how good a person you are, good in quotes, no matter how good a mom you are, a good dad, a good friend, a good kid, a good employee, if it's not for God's sake, it is evil. Is that, is that a redefinition for some of you? Anything that you do that is not oriented towards God and his praise, anything not for his sake is sin. And Jesus wants you to know that. Now, there's good news for you if you're living for this world, which all of us are. We all come into this world living for this world. There's hope. We're going to get to the hope later. But you've got to first know, you have to know, that living for anything less than the glory of God, 
living your life for any other prize than God himself is evil. That's why the world hates Jesus, because he talks like that. If you go on TV or the internet and you tell people that, that a life not oriented towards God's praise is evil, you're not going to be liked across the board. It's not like people who are politically conservative are going to like you and people who are politically liberal will hate you or liberals will like you, conservatives will hate you or artsy people will like you, sporty people won't or vice versa. Across the board, if you tell them that living for this world and not the praise of God is evil, you will not be liked. You've got to have a new heart before you're going to buy into that message from Jesus. Now, Let's look at how Jesus' relationship with the world and Jesus' brother's relationship with the world plays out in their relationship. I mean, I'm thinking about it like a triangle, right? World's up here. Jesus is over here. He's got a different kind of relationship than his brothers do, but that's going to play out in the way that they relate with each other. Look at verses 3 through 4. His brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, when they say, if you do these things, they're not doubting that he can do miracles. They're not. Some people read this and they think, oh, they don't think Jesus can do miracles. They know he can do miracles. The entire logic of verse 3 is this. Go to Judea so that your disciples can see your miracles. I mean, Jesus is famous in Galilee because he fed the 5,000. Apparently, his brothers were at Cana when he turned the water into wine. They know he can do miracles. So when his brothers say in verse 4, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, they're saying this. Why are you doing them here in Galilee? Why? Let's go to Jerusalem. That's the big show. If you're going to do these things, don't waste your time here in Galilee with a few unimportant people. Let's go big. Let's take this to the festival. So his brothers want him to put on a show in Jerusalem and in Judea. And verse 5 should surprise you because it tells you why they want him to put on a show in Jerusalem. Here's the reason. Because, or for, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. Hold on. They want him to do miracles in Jerusalem because they don't believe in him? Yes. Just like the crowd that Jesus fed with bread and fish, the 5,000, they believed he did the miracle. All of them believed that he did the miracle, but they didn't want him to be the kind of king he wanted to be. They wanted him to be the kind of king they wanted. They wanted to use Jesus for more bread, maybe victory over the Romans. That's what they wanted to use Jesus for. Jesus' brothers are the same. They want more people to see Jesus' miracles so that Jesus can be famous powerful, so that they can have a famous, powerful brother. 
They love this world. And if Jesus becomes the most famous, powerful person in this world, that would be a pretty sweet deal, wouldn't it? It's like being best friends with a rock star or a shake. Some solid perks that come with that. Some nice vacations. Some nice dinners. That's what verse 5 is telling us. They want Jesus famous because they don't believe in him. They want his fame or his power or his status because they love this world and a famous, powerful Jesus can get them more of this world. That's unbelief. Using Jesus to get more of what your worldly heart already loves is, according to verse 5, unbelief. No matter how powerful you think Jesus is, if you're using him to get this world, it's unbelief. Just check yourself here because we all, we all are tempted to do this in our religious activities. I'm reading my Bible. I start reading my Bible because my visa situation is getting precarious. And I'm going to start reading my Bible and saying my prayers and Jesus is going to get me a visa. Or I come to church so that I can network with people and advance my career. Rather than what Jesus is saying, directing everything for the sake of God, for his sake, for his glory. Here's what Jesus really came for. This is what all of this means for you and me. Jesus did not come to fit into this world and become the greatest person in it. That's what his brothers were hoping he would do. He came to testify against it, to die for it, and to remake it. He says, verse 7, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus didn't come to affirm your life without him. He didn't. That's really important in this day and age that we live in, where affirming people's desires, their thoughts, their lifestyles is synonymous with love. That's what the world says. If you're going to love someone, you need to affirm what they desire, what they think, their lifestyle. And that's not the way Jesus sees it. He's the most loving man who ever lived. And he came to tell us, what he's saying here, that our lives in thought, in desire, in deed, that are not for God's sake, are evil. That's the first part of understanding the good news of Christianity. It's the first part of sharing the good news. It's not trying to win a hearing by telling people they're okay. It's trying to help people see they're in danger because they don't live for the glory of God. To be a Christian, you have to understand that your life without him is evil. You have to. Jesus is explaining to his brothers, the world's not a big fan of that. The world's not a big fan of Jesus showing up and saying their works are evil. They're not throwing Jesus a party for talking like that. Now, you should be winsome when you share the gospel with people. That means don't be a jerk. Love people. 
but you can't get around this. You can't avoid this. You can't candy coat this. Because before the good news is the bad news. By the way, people, people won't hate you for sharing the good news. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. It's the bad news they don't like you for. You're a sinner, and you need someone to save you. And he did. If you're willing to recognize that your life has fallen short of the glory of God and that it's wrong, you have the best news in the world waiting on the other side. Because Jesus came to be punished for your evil. And this is the good news that we have. He came to take the wrath of God against your and my world-loving sin. He came to take that wrath on himself and die. If you repent, if you turn to God, you turn away from loving this world, if you simply trust him, he forgives you as a gift. It's yours. It's a gift. It's finished. He doesn't simply come to testify against this world. Like he's, not, he's not an old man driving down the street, waving his fist at the kids who are playing in the yard. Get out of my yard! That's not what he's doing. Keep on driving. No, he did come to tell us that our lives without him are evil, but then he went the distance in love. And he pays for it. But that's not all. He also remakes us. Jesus' goal is to rescue you from your love of this world. It's not just to testify against you, and it's not simply to forgive you for loving this world. It's to rescue you from the love of this world. He wants to reorient you a massive shift to happen in your soul where you go from living for this world, which we all start out doing, to living for God. That's what he's come to do for us. Moms, dads, this is what we want for our kids. We're not raising our kids just so we can cram a bunch of math facts into their heads. That's not what we're doing. We want to see a major shift happen in their souls where they go from being creator, creation worshipers to being creator worshipers. That's what we want to see happen. But that's not most of what we think of when we think of training our kids, is it? We think, well, I'm going to give them math skills and writing skills and reading skills so that they can get more stuff in this world. That's not what we're here to do. Yes, they need to learn their math. They need to learn how to write. They need to learn how to read for the sake of God. That's what we're doing. That's what we want to see happen in our kids. That's what our parenting is all about. Christians, this is what Jesus wants for you now. And if you're a Christian, this has happened. A massive shift has happened where you've gone from living for this world to seeing that he's the treasure. I want him to be glorified. That's what makes me happy. But more and more, he is working on you to make sure that you do what you do for his sake. He, he's living right now so that you would live for him to be glorified. 
that you would know that living for the glory of God is actually happier, more peaceful, more full than living for this world. He's come to do that, and he'll help you. That's his project on you, Christian. Because conversion, that's that massive shift. When you first trust him, you go from loving this world, being a creation worshiper to a creator worshiper. But we all know, and the Bible testifies, we know from experience, there's still lots of love for this world in our hearts. And his aim is to put it to death more and more so that we would love him with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Your life now is a process of Jesus doing that. If you're wondering, what's God doing with my life right now? I'm not really sure. He's disciplining you. He's encouraging you. He's bringing relationships and circumstances into your life to make you more and more oriented for the glory of God. That is him working for your joy. They're one and the same. You you may feel like life is hard. It's hard right now. Why is this happening to me? I don't understand what the purpose is in all of this. Now, none of us knows all that God is doing, but we do know his big aim behind it all, which is to make you someone who enjoys, enjoys living for the fame of his name and his father's name. And then he'll complete that work. He will. One day it will be finished. When he returns or you die, he'll finish it. He will complete the work he started that we would be completely oriented towards his father. That's what he's doing. That's the kind of work he's doing as our king. That's the king he is. So let's receive him as that kind of king. Let's pray. Jesus, that's what we want. We we want to be changed. We want to be people who love the glory of your Father, who love your glory and live for it rather than living for the glory of this world. Oh, please, would you make us people like that? Would you help us? Lord, we pray for our children and our unbelieving friends, even people in this room, that you would make that massive shift happen that you would transform us from being world worshipers to being those who worship you. Please. Thank you for your word. I pray that we would not be people who use you for some other treasure, but who come to you so that we can have you and your Father and the Spirit as our treasure. Help us. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.